Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 15. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episodes, I'll be performing three spine-chilling tales for you about unfortunate families, suspect students, and risky rituals. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. (laughs) Our first tale tonight is a brand new Chilling Tales for Dark Knights original exclusive story, 
and comes to us courtesy of author Seth Paul. In it, we'll meet a family that's got far worse problems than your average clan. What matters most to this family might just be matters of life and death. Without further ado, I present to you Blood Ties. The sky was dark, threatening rain, as Ryan got out of the car, slamming the door behind him. Uncle Selwyn's house, well, less house and more the ancestral family manor he'd inherited and called home, stood in front of him larger and more foreboding than he remembered as a child. He had been banging on the front door and yelling for his uncle to come out for the better part of ten minutes as the other cars pulled up. Gary, the youngest cousin, barely in college, in his hand-me-down Toyota Tercel, Jennifer in her BMW Z3, a gift to herself for finishing law school and getting an associate position, saving every penny she could since high school to afford it, and Ellie in the seat next to her, having lost her license while arguing with an undercover cop trying to drive back drunk from a sorority party. They had all grown up together, even though Gary, Ryan, Jennifer, Ellie, and Chris were only cousins, they were closer than most brothers and sisters. Ryan would have considered himself the leader, but Ellie and Gary probably wouldn't have thought of him that way, since he usually tormented the two of them to no end as kids. Gary still had a scar on his arm from years ago, when Ryan pushed him down a hill and he landed on an old can that someone had thrown away and was hidden in the grass. And Ellie never forgave him for locking her in the closet at the grandmother's funeral when she was three. It was her earliest memory and not one of her favorites. Of the parents, all related by blood on their grandfather's side of the family, they were all the only children of each one. Only Uncle Selwyn never had kids, and for a very long time, the eccentric, wild-haired man, who could never hold a job longer than a few months, was one of their favorite people in the whole world. A consummate storyteller, Selwyn was equal parts entertaining, hilarious, and frightening as hell. But he doted on each one of them, even when they got older and outgrew his stories, except Gary, who thought Selwyn could do no wrong. Then their grandfather died. While their grandmother died somewhat peaceably from medical complications when they were all still very young and gave Ellie that horrible memory, their grandfather had been with them until Ryan entered middle school. His death was much less peaceable. The mailman dropping off mail on the front porch had been the one to hear the sounds coming from the woods behind the house. Machine sound, ragged, clogged with something. He went around the back and saw the shape in the trees, the chipper of some kind, and all the blood everywhere. Uncle Selwyn was different after that. At the funeral, he spoke to no one, sitting toward the back, his wild hair finally showing flecks of gray. He'd been left the old manor house in the will, but he showed no signs of enjoyment or grateful for the honor. Instead, he just grew more uncomfortable 
and he mostly retreated from family life. Six months later, Ryan's father died. He'd been coming home from work when he got a flat tire. At that point, the story became jumbled, as there were no witnesses. Police assumed he'd been hit by a truck and dragged the better part of a mile, but no one ever reported a truck in the area. But there was no mistaking the flat tire, the bloody street that lay along the roadway and his mangled, ruined body. It was tragic on many fronts, but the worst was the news that, after months of being underwater, his father had gotten a promotion and couldn't wait to tell his family the good news when he got home. Jennifer's mother had been given a long spa weekend by her firm for a good job well done. She was found in one of the tanning beds. The spa was fine for improper equipment maintenance, but they said that there was no way that the machine glass could break like that, or that broken glass could rip a person apart like that. But there was no other evidence that anything happened. The camera in there wasn't working properly that day, and there was no reason to suspect anyone would or could do that to another person in that short a period of time. All of their parents on their grandfather's side, one by one, all died in freak accidents. They were all different, but the results were the same. Shredded, mangled, horrifically so. All but Uncle Selwyn. He came to Ryan's father's funeral, but then he was never seen. He never called. He never even sent sympathy cards. He simply retreated into that house and didn't come out. The rumors started shortly after. Everyone may have died in an accident, but they all just knew that Uncle Selwyn was involved. He had to be. Why had everything bad happened to his family and he was left alone? Gary's father was last. His car was upside down at the bottom of a hill, and even though the inside of the car was relatively undamaged, he was torn to shreds. For a few years, that was the end of it. But then, a few days ago, Chris, who worked at the docks unloading cargo from freighters, got word that he was going to be a father for the first time. He left voicemails for all his cousins, except for Ryan, whose voicemail never worked right. It always seemed to come days after they were supposed to. The last voicemail he ever sent was to Jennifer, the final number of the five he called, and on it, Jennifer heard the commotion at the dock as the cable came loose and the horrible sound as the shipping crates came together, crushing Chris between them. The funeral was short in a closed casket on the recommendation of the funeral home director. Again, no Uncle Selwyn, though no one was surprised anymore. During the funeral, though, Ryan received a call. He was handling most of the funeral planning, so no one thought much about it until he took the call out to the parking lot and they heard his muffled yelling. He got into his car and drove off. Everyone wondered what had happened when Jennifer received a call herself. It was the insurance company apologizing for calling, but since Ryan had hung up on them, they felt it necessary to call another family member. Based on their investigation it would be necessary to file potential criminal charges against Chris's employer. The cable had not broken, as originally thought, 
what appeared to have been cut cleanly by something powerful and very sharp. They knew it wasn't the docks Ryan was driving to. They all got into their cars and followed after them. Ryan was practically ready to bust the door down when Gary pulled him back. Ryan, we don't know if. Like hell we don't. Ryan grabbed Gary by the shirt and pushed him back off the porch. He may not have cut that cable, but he sure as hell knows something's going on. And for a long time. I'm not leaving until I get some goddamn answers. Just then, the lock turned and Selwyn, looking like he'd seen better days, opened it. His eyes were surrounded by dark rings, almost sunken, and he looked older and more tired than his fifty-odd years suggested. His hair, though, was still just as wild as ever, sticking up all over the place like he'd woken up with his finger in an electric socket. Ryan moved to grab him, but Jennifer put a hand on Ryan's shoulder. Give him a minute, Ryan. Let him explain himself first. Selwyn ushered them all into the sitting room. The room looked more like an old film set than a room. A couch in the middle covered with an old blanket and the many staring eyes of taxidermied birds, foxes, and other animals crammed into every corner. After Grandma died, taxidermy became Grandpa's big hobby, and he'd gotten very good at it. While they tried to find places to sit in the room, Selwyn leaned against the fireplace. There was a small fire going on in it, and even as everyone waited for him to speak, he seemed lost in it, staring into its center. It's true. I do know something about what's going on, but I haven't done what you think I have. It's because I can't do anything that I am the way I am. You all deserve to know the truth. He sighed. Our family's cursed. Ryan rolled his eyes, got off his chair, and punched Selwyn across the jaw. The others pulled him back, but Selwyn stood up, holding his jaw, which was bruising quite badly already, and he just kept his same sullen expression. Lying son of a bitch! What did you do? What did you do to everyone? Ryan, stop it. Jennifer whipped Ryan around. She lowered her voice. I don't believe it either. But hitting him won't get us the truth. Let him talk and pay attention and see if you can figure out what really happened. Gary, on the other hand, was the only one to check and see if his uncle was okay. Selwyn nodded and waved him away. I don't blame you, Ryan would have done the same thing as you if I heard the same thing. But it's true. I wish it wasn't. Ryan, despite clear signs that was against his wishes, sat down, frowning, and let Selwyn talk. You hear things growing up, things that sound strange, that the adults only talk about when they think the kids aren't paying attention. But I always did. This, with everyone dying like this, it's not new. No one talks about it, but every generation on this side of the family is being wiped out. Not one in 150 years has died of natural causes. Selwyn looked down into the fire. It all has to do with this house, and 
my great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, and my namesake, Selwyn Meyer. I don't know how much you kids know about your family's history, but he was a legend in real estate, made a fortune, but sadly for us, it wasn't always honestly earned. After all his hard work, he wanted to have a place away from the rush of the world, and he found this land here was exactly what he wanted. It was already owned by a family that had settled there shortly after the Revolutionary War. He offered to buy the land, offering less than what it was worth, but the owners refused, said they had an obligation to be there, and their family went back decades and further. Salwin tapped on top of the fireplace. Apparently, he wasn't one to settle for a no. He offered them more, eventually twice, then three times what the land was worth, but they still wouldn't budge. They said they literally could not leave. The land meant too much to them. Great-grandfather Selwyn assumed the land must have had something far more valuable than they were letting on, so he hired a band of thugs to help him search the land at night, looking for what secrets the family was hiding and to rough the family up if they turned up nothing. He found a cave, expected gold. Instead, he found an altar with a large chunk of brownish crystal on it. Ellie scrunched her brow. What crystal is brown? Salwyn smiled. That's just it. They didn't know. But great-granddad said he picked it up and it spoke to him. Ryan sighed. Spoke to him. Where did you hear all this? He talked to you after hanging out with Captain Morgan all night? Ellie spun on Ryan, scowling. Ryan! Jesus! Selwyn waved at her gently. It's okay. I know it sounds crazy. But I know because it's all in his journal. This journal nobody knew existed. Until now. He threw a dusty book onto the couch where it flopped open. The paper inside was thicker than the type they saw in books today. More leathery, but the ink in it was very legible, even if the handwriting was difficult to make out. You don't believe in curses, Ryan, but your great-great-granddad did. It's because the rock that spoke to him asked to be freed from its prison, and it would help him. So he smashed the crystal on the ground. The next day, the family and the land all perished in a horse-drawn cart accident while going to town, and he bought the land just like he wanted. Selwyn suddenly pounded his fist hard on the fireplace top. He winced and looked at his hand. A small trickle of blood leaked out of it. But something happened in the deal. Either he cheated it, or he cheated him, it doesn't really matter which is true. That's when the curse rebounded on our family. This thing from the crystal comes for our family, intending to wipe it out a generation at a time. Maybe that's the reason, deep down, I never had kids. But the thing is, even when they're not yours, some kids just worm their way into your heart. He went over to where he threw the book onto the couch and flipped through the pages, coming to a page with a drawing of what had to be the crystal he mentioned. 
It looked a lot smaller, cracked in places. There was one fragment of the crystal left. That thing can't stand it, and whoever has it is left alone by the creature. Maybe it's afraid it'll trap it once again. I don't know. But I know it works, because I'm the last one of my generation, and my father gave it to me. Gary took the book and began flipping through it. Ryan said nothing, but balled his fists again. The day after he gave it to me, that was when the mailman found him, lodged halfway in his wood chipper. It must have been waiting, just waiting, for him to give it up. Ryan had enough and stood up. You expect us to buy this crap? And there you turn around and tell us that Grandpa, what, loved you more than my dad and gave you that? Ellie teared up. If that's true, why didn't you try and protect Mom? Selwyn gulped and teared up. I did try to save them. But you don't believe me now, even after all this has happened. What do you think they thought of me when I tried to warn them? When I didn't even know the truth until I read that journal? The room quieted. That made sense. Who would believe something so insane from lonely old storytelling Uncle Selwyn? But tonight is not a good night. Since you're all here, I was going to tell you I had the crystal and give it to one of you. But I can't choose You'd have to do it yourself, and... And... Selwyn broke down into tears. The crystal's gone. It wasn't on my bedside table when I woke up this morning. And now you're all here, and that's the worst thing that could happen. Gary, who'd been looking closely at a page in the journal, where there was a rough, almost childish sketch of a lanky figure with long talons and a fiendish face. Why is that, Uncle? Because if it comes tonight for me, none of you are safe either. It could take you all in one night. Even Ryan looked around for a second, half expecting a giant monstrosity to come into the room just then, but nothing did. It was Jennifer that finally made the first move, standing up. Well, thank you for talking to us, Uncle Selwyn. We appreciate it. I, I think it might be best if we get going. But it's not... Sa I think we'll be just fine. She then waved to the rest to follow her out of the room and into the front hall. Ryan glared at her. What are you doing? Jennifer sighed. Look at him, Ryan. Do you really think he would cut a steel cable? He's not a murderer but he's not well. He needs professional help. He thinks a curse is killing people, and he feels responsible. You heard him talking about that crystal. I don't know all about Grandpa hating him, but wow, wouldn't that mess you up if you got into a big fight with your dad and the next day he died, and as horribly as that? Everyone shuffled nervously for a moment. It sounded right. Jennifer was always the voice of reason. That's why she'd become such a successful lawyer, after all. Look, we can maybe sit with him for a little while, make sure he doesn't hurt himself, while we wait for someone to come and get him. Does that work for everyone? 
Everyone nodded except for Gary, who still held the journal. Look, I want to make sure he's okay too, but are we so sure he's wrong? I mean, look at this drawing. It's just... None of this is normal. Other people's families just don't have this happen to them. Jennifer sighed. Gary, come on. What's more likely, that we have a freakishly high number of accidents in our family, or that some monster is killing them because it got stiffed by our great-great-grandfather? I know he was your favorite, but it's crazy talk. He needs a doctor and proper care. Go back in there. I'm going to make a phone call to some doctors I know, and I don't want him to hear me. They went back inside. Ryan took a few deep breaths to get himself under control, then led Gary and Ellie into the setting room. Uncle Selwyn wasn't in there. There was another exit from the sitting room that led to a side hallway, but he wasn't down there either, and no one saw him leave. Ellie wandered into the side hall, calling for him, and checking in rooms. Ryan pounded his hands on the couch, dust flying up. Where did he run off to now? Gary sat down on the couch, his worry overridden by the journal he held in his hands. He flipped through it, studying the pages. What if it is real? Jesus, Gary, how do you know he didn't make that himself? He could have spent months making something just to fake you out. He's nuts, Gary. Accept it. There were footsteps, and Ellie came running back. Hey, guys, there's a really weird room back here. You should come and see it. Gary stood up. I'll get Jennifer. Ryan shook his head. Her muffled voice could still be heard in the front hall, talking to someone. She's busy. We'll go look and tell her later. The three cousins went down the side hall together to what may have been a first-floor bedroom sometime in the past, but had been converted to an office. Newspaper clippings were tacked to the walls, and notebooks filled the two-fold-out table that had been placed in there. The clippings ranged from the obituaries of their parents to much older, dating back decades. Written on each obituary and pen was some method of death, all of which involved mutilation of some sort. Ellie flipped open one of the notebooks. It's all family, going back generations. He must have been studying all the deaths. She pointed at her mother's obituary. He might be crazy, Ryan, but if he is, our family is really, really unlucky. There was a loud crash. In this room, the sound was washed out and could have come from practically anywhere, but in general it appeared to have at least started upstairs. They ran back into the sitting room. Outside, they could still hear muffled conversation. Ryan raised an eyebrow. Jeez, didn't she hear that? He pushed the door open. Jennifer was still on the front hall, but not quite how they left her. She lay on the floor near the main staircase, surrounded by bits of railing from where it appeared she had fallen. But more than that, she looked like she had been attacked with a series of very sharp knives. She was barely recognizable, as her face and arms had nearly been flayed away. The muffled conversation that they'd heard through the door was her phone on speakerphone. It seemed to be some kind of spoken word 
relaxation exercise she had saved to her phone, repeating all is well over and over again. No one moved. Ellie started to sob a little. Gary kept swallowing, either to prevent himself from throwing up or preparing himself to. Ryan looked on in absolute horror. Just a moment ago, she'd just been fine. They hadn't been gone that long, but somehow she'd gone upstairs and fallen or was pushed. But the gashes and slicing, that was no accident. Does anyone believe me now that he's crazy? Gary shook his head. No way, Ryan. You saw him. He doesn't have the strength to. To do what? Stab someone who doesn't see it coming? Push somebody over a staircase? Look, he'd do anything to make us believe this stuff. He reached down to grab her phone, but something crunched as he did so, and the phone shut off. Shit. Gary, you got your phone? Crap. I think I left it at the funeral home. Ellie? Mine's in the car, but I, I rode up with Jennifer, and I'm not digging in her jacket for her. She started to sob. Yeah, 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 that, that's fine. Gary, mine's in my car, too. He handed Gary his keys. Here, go get it. We need to call somebody. Gary ran out to the car, and Ellie and Ryan went into the sitting room. Ryan grabbed a blanket off of the couch and took it into the front hall, covering Jennifer with it. He heard a thump from upstairs. Quietly, he started up the stairs, looking to see the cause of the noise. But the house was so big, it could have been one of several rooms that it came from. He stepped back down, moved quietly to the sitting room, keeping his eyes on the stairs the whole time. He waved to Ellie. Ellie, I think he's upstairs. Go on, get to my car. Tell Gary to start it up. I'll be out in a minute. Ellie nodded, moved past the covered body of Jennifer, and went out to the porch. Ryan heard another thump from upstairs, but turned his attention briefly to Ellie to make sure she was going. His eyes widened. The fog had rolled in, covering the lawn to the point where the cars could not be seen. Except now, Ryan saw a car, his car, tumbling forward, the emergency brake, and headlights off, gathering speed. Ellie had no chance. The car smashed into her, crushing part of the porch staircase as well. Ryan screamed and ran out to what remained of the porch. All he could see of Ellie was her hand sticking up under the fender. It wasn't moving. Tried to feel her pulse calling to her. Nothing. He sat up on the porch looking at the car itself. The door was open on the driver's side. He got up to look. The car stank from all the food wrappers he left in there. And the pile of mail from the past few days that he hadn't bothered to look at was still scattered on the passenger seat. But there was no sign of Gary or his phone. A thought suddenly burned in Ryan's brain. He couldn't believe it. Then, he couldn't believe a whole lot else that was going on. Could Gary be helping Uncle Selwyn? Gary was always his favorite. No doubt about that. But maybe he'd gotten caught up in all of this, too. He couldn't know for sure, but Ellie was gone. Jennifer was gone. 
and everyone else was missing. He couldn't take any chances. There was nothing in the car he could use as a weapon, but walking around the house, he managed to come across a woodpile, and next to it, an old axe. After the chipper accident, it made sense that Selwyn might want to go back to more manual labor. Ryan took it and went through the back door, holding the axe ready. The house was so quiet, other than the occasional thump from upstairs. Ryan checked behind everything, just to make sure he wasn't taken by surprise as he made his way back up toward the main staircase. Once he made it to the second floor, Ryan heard another thump and tried to follow it. It seemed to be coming from the second bedroom on the left, the door one of the few that was closed. He slowly and quietly turned the knob. This was Uncle Selwyn's bedroom. It was obvious from how lived in it was. And there, staring out the window, was Uncle Selwyn, banging his head on the glass, making the thump. He seemed to be in pain, but there was no obvious wound, other than the mark on his hand from earlier. Uncle Selwyn, he raised the axe, ready to swing it if he needed to. You need to come with me. I'm going to take you somewhere where you can get the help you need. Selwyn stopped banging his head. I'm not the one who needs help, Ryan. It's too late for that. He turned to face Ryan. You didn't find the shard, did you? Ryan would have rolled his eyes, but too much had happened in the past ten minutes for him to feel anything but anger and hatred. There is no shard, you miserable, crazy old bastard. You need help. You need to come with me now. At that, Selwyn smiled. So, you still don't believe it, even now. I guess that's good, in a way. Selwyn stepped toward him. As he did so, he seemed to grow taller, thinner. His skin began to melt away. His lips peeled back revealing long, sharp teeth. Brian dropped the axe. Sometimes it's good to drop the pretense. I love to feed on hope and happiness before I get to the meat, and when non-believers see me, why, that's when hope is at its strongest. Talons emerged from under the dripping fingernails. Brian burst into tears and fell on his knees. And then with an ear-rendering scream, it came at him. Some distance away from the house, Gary woke in the mud, scratched and bleeding, his head aching but otherwise unharmed. Before waking here, he last remembered being in the car and something pulling him violently out to the side just as he grabbed Ryan's phone. This car was a mess, and Gary had to dig through a pile of mail to find it. In his other hand was one of the envelopes. The envelope had no return address, but Gary recognized the handwriting. It was Uncle Selwyn's. Brian's phone buzzed. There was a voicemail notification. Gary checked it. It was dated about a week ago. His phone always had that problem, with voicemails coming days after. Gary recognized the number on it. Thankfully, Ryan never locked his phone, so he listened. Hi, Ryan. It's Uncle Selwyn. I know you and I have never gotten along much, but I hope uh, 
you keep what I sent you the other day. It's important. My dad gave me that the day before he died, and he didn't do it out of love. I never told you this, but your granddad hated me, Ryan. He thought I was lazy, selfish, and had no purpose in life. But we had a fight that day, and he told me that with this, I would know what it was like to watch everything and everyone you loved die. He was right. I held on to this crystal and saw as your parents, my brothers and sisters, all died, and I could do nothing. Or, really, I didn't do anything. I was a coward. But I know you're not. You're decisive, Ryan. And that's why I gave this to you. You're strong, and you'll know what to do when time is right. Maybe you'll be better at protecting your cousins than I am. There was a sound like a door opening. It's here. I love you guys, and goodbye. There were still a few more seconds left on the call. Just before the voicemail ended, Gary heard the sound of an ear-rending scream. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Blood Dies, the latest Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's exclusive talent from author Seth Paul. If you enjoyed that last tale, I'd like to encourage you to check out more of the author via his profile on creepypastastories.com where you'll find not just more of Seth's fearsome fiction, but new and much-loved tales from dozens of other very talented authors, all free of charge. Again, that's creepypastastories.com, and don't forget to let them know that Otis Jiry sent you. Up next, we've got another second tale of terror for you, courtesy of author Kyle Harrison. In it, a school bus driver's attention is drawn to a student on his route with a rather unusual problem. But even if he figures out what the cause of the predicament is, will he be able to do anything about it? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you, There's a boy in my bus that smells of death. I've been doing this for many years. Sure, I've changed schools a couple of times, had even moved states to help with my wife's elderly parents. 
but I've always viewed the kids on my bus as an extension of my family. At the beginning of the school year, I prepare a welcome bag for them, something simple like a box of crayons and pencils for the kindergartners, and maybe a few notebooks for the upper grades. They always enjoy every minute of my bus because I take the time to really and truly get to know each of them. I keep a record of their names, try to associate it with something like favorite food or song, and then memorize those details. I know this probably seems like a lot of work when I'm only getting paid a measly $13 an hour, but it matters to me. Sometimes these kids are all alone and come from bad homes. It's my job, as part of the educational system, to provide them with a safe place, even if it's only for an hour coming and going. I think the kids that have the roughest time adjusting to school are the ones that come in late, with zero friends and no clue as to what's happening. I try to help out as much as I can. That was my intention when my boss gave me a new rider on March 30th this year. It was only a few blocks away from one of my other spots, and according to the paperwork, the kid was six years old and named Jack Calford. The file also said he had two siblings, but neither of them was old enough to ride and that his mom's name was Samantha, and she'd recently separated. That told me already that this kid was probably going to have a tough time. I lost my dad at that age, and it's never been easy to connect to anyone. Had it not been for a few strong male figures in my life, I probably wouldn't have had anyone to consider a father. So that next Monday morning, I went the extra mile to get ready to meet Jack. I got two sets of crayons, pencils, some staplers and glue, and even a backpack with wheels. I drove up to pick him up around 7.15, the time we'd arranged with the mom, and got my first look at his house. A few of the other kids were already making a few remarks because of the dirty, unclean nature of the yard, but I guess that the mom probably didn't have many choices when it came time to find housing. I've always been the kind to give people the benefit of the doubt. I put my air brake on, and the flashing lights told them I was outside, as I opened the door, I smelled this strange, distant odor. Couldn't quite put my finger on it at first, but it was very distinct. I think it reminded me of something I found under my house once, like old mold. But Jack never came out, and I knew I couldn't wait, so I drove away. The other kids jeered, and I had to focus on settling them down the rest of the ride to the elementary, as I thought about Jack and his current home conditions. I wanted to know for sure he was okay. Jack didn't show up to get on the afternoon ride either, and I asked my boss if I'd gotten the address wrong. You know how it is. Parents never remember the first time they try to get their kids out to the bus on time. Well, I couldn't argue with that, so the next day I decided to wait for a few extra minutes to make sure Jack could make it on the bus. Again, when I opened the door... I smelled a repugnant odor, and I felt my mouth starting to go dry. A few of the kids that I had already picked up were starting to complain, so I honked the horn. Jack's mom waved at the window, and I smiled, glad to finally make some progress. A few seconds later, the door to their house opened, and I saw Jack step out. I've seen a lot of kids come from bad situations, 
but the way this boy was dressed just hurt my heart. It was clear that the mom couldn't afford to get him clean pants or even a shirt that was the right size. And as I got closer to the bus door, I saw that his face was dirty and that odor I detected earlier seemed to follow him as he got on the bus. It took me a moment to refrain from being repulsed by the smell. I knew it wasn't this child's fault, so I smiled at him and offered him the backpack filled with goodies that I'd been planning to give him the day before. Welcome aboard, Jack, and call me Mr. Charlie, I said with a broad smile. The boy made no response and just took the bag and shuffled his feet toward the back of the school bus. As he passed the other kids by, several of them started to make sarcastic and derogatory comments about his smell. Did you sleep in dog crap? Do you own a bath? Disgusting, one little girl shouted. Jack didn't even bother to lash out. He just quietly got to the back of the bus and found an empty seat. Unsurprisingly, nobody wanted to sit by him. Near the end of my route, before we get to school, my bus gets typically packed, and I nearly got into an argument with a high schooler about Jack. Mr. Charles, that kid smells like death, the girl said, holding her nose and trying not to gag. Either sit there or you walk to school, I shouted at her. I hated to raise my voice, but the truth was, during the entire bus ride, the other kids had complained. I knew that Jack was going to have problems as soon as he got into class. After all the kids got off, I gave Jack a half-hearted smile and hoped that his teachers would find a way to get off that smell. I didn't want to jump to conclusions, but I couldn't imagine that his mother wanted him to go to school smelling like this. It just bothered me to no end, especially what that one girl had said. Jack smelled like he was covered in the odor of death. That wasn't an exaggeration. It literally could only be described as a smell you could get if you had killed an animal and left it out in the hot sun for a week. And it made me so sad to imagine that poor kid having to be bullied and taunted all day because of that smell. Not to my surprise, that afternoon I found out Jack's teacher had made him go home early because too many kids had complained about the smell. I don't think we can let this kid ride on the bus until his mom takes him to a doctor and figures out why he stinks so much, my boss said. That just rubbed me the wrong way even more. It's not their fault. Larry, if you saw this house, you'd understand. These people are poor. They need some help, I told him. Maybe so, but that is not a problem. We have about 50 other kids to take care of on that route, and we can't be busy worrying about just one. The school will handle it from here, my boss told me. I told him I was fine with that, but it just sat wrong with me. I wanted to do something more than just stop and check to see if he could ride on the bus yet. Maybe it wasn't my place to do any of this, but my heart just went out to the kid. I went to Walmart that afternoon and bought him everything I felt he needed and waited until I got off work to stop by his house. I've always been told that after hours we aren't supposed to get sociable with our kids or their family, but I felt like this was an exception. 
I got there about 4.15 and parked my car right in front of their driveway, so there wasn't any surprise about someone being there. I grabbed the backpack and walked up to the door, doing my best to ignore the pungent smell that was all across the entire front yard. Knocking on the door, I held the backpack behind my leg and got a better look at the toys that Jack was playing with, scattered throughout the yard. There were dolls with their heads bitten off as though the boy had been chewing on them, mismatched Lego sets that didn't seem to have any particular pattern, and action figures that reminded me of those messed-up toys from the first Pixar film. All of it told me a troubling story about how Jack's home life was going. Was that the reason for the smell? His mother appeared at the door a moment later, her eyes filled with questions and surprise at seeing me. Uh, who, who are you? She asked. Uh, Ma'am, I don't mean to bother, but I work with the school. I'm your son's school bus driver. I told her as I briefly glanced inside their home. The mess that was covering the yard easily spread into the first living area. Was it so bad that they couldn't clean up after themselves? I didn't want to judge, so instead I showed her the gifts that I'd brought for Jack. I know that you want to give your child a good education, and all of us at the school are worried about him. Uh, this is my way of pitching in to help, I said, offering the backpack to her. Her eyes welled up with tears, and I wasn't sure if she was going to have a breakdown or shout in my face. Sometimes it was impossible to be sure how a parent would react. I can't accept this, she finally said. That was not the response I was expecting. Before I even knew how to reply, she closed her door hastily, and I was standing on the trash-covered front step of her house alone. I sighed, figuring that she must have had her reasons, and left the bag with the clothes at the side of her door. I didn't mean to embarrass her, but now my main concern was for the welfare of her child. The next day, Jack rode. It seemed like his mom had overcome her apprehension attitude because he was wearing the clothes I'd bought. They fit him almost perfectly. Walking out to the bus, I saw he seemed happier than before, and I thought maybe this was the start of a new chapter for him. That changed, though, when I opened the door to let him on the bus. That same foul smell covered him like a stench despite the new clothes, and this time I found myself doing my best to avoid throwing up. It was that bad. Did you, didn't you take a shower? A girl on the front seat asked. Jack glared at her, seemingly embarrassed that his new clothes weren't hiding his smell, and then tossed his backpack down and ran back inside his house. Some of the kids giggled, and it took all my self-control not to yell for them to quiet. But I knew one thing for certain. Jack wouldn't be going back to school until that smell was off his body permanently. I don't know why I felt obliged to reach out and help. Maybe because I was already so invested in him. Maybe because he reminded me of myself. But that afternoon, I stopped by their house again with a new goal. It occurred to me that maybe his mother couldn't afford clean water. I want to extend my house to you and your son, I told her. I knew that being older, she wouldn't consider my intentions to be anything except friendly. But she still declined. I know you've been so kind to Jack, 
But you just need to stop. I don't want anything bad to happen to you, she said. That thought made a little sense to me, as I couldn't fathom how helping Jack out would harm me. And the way she acted bothered me. Was she scared of her son? Couldn't be that. I felt like she was hiding something. She had turned away help from me and the school time and time again, and I couldn't grasp why that was. So I did something I've never had to do in my career, and I contacted CPS. I think I was a little angry, maybe because I was just so worried about Jack, but I couldn't think of any other way to help him. I told the representative that I talked to the entire situation, and they thanked me for my diligence. You've done an amazing job, Mr. Charles. We'll handle it from here, a woman told me. That whole weekend, my stomach churned, and I worried about what would happen to Jack. They said they'd get to his house as quickly as possible, but I wasn't so sure it was going to be that easy. Monday rolled around again, and I tried to resume normal life and put the worry out of my head, but it got stronger as I arrived at Jack's house. Something was wrong. This time, as he boarded the bus, he looked angry and hostile as though I had stabbed him in the heart. The smell was also stronger than it had ever been. I literally had to hold my breath when he was near me. And I saw his mother standing in the doorstep glaring at me. It looked like her arm was covered in scratches. Jack attacked her because she was apprehensive about returning to school. It bothered me to no end. What if CPS had come, but hadn't found anything disturbing at all? It all felt like something had happened in that house, and it wasn't good. I've made it a habit of mine to trust my gut, and this told me I needed to get inside that house and find out what was happening. I was sure I'd likely lose my job over this, but I needed to know the truth about why Jack's smell hadn't gone away why CPS hadn't taken this kid away to a better home. I needed answers. Jack, is there something happening in your house that you're scared of? I asked the boy. I made sure he was the last one off that day. I knew the mother would open the door when she saw the school bus, and it was going to be my only chance. He only nodded, not even bothering to explain. Not that he needed to. That told me that This mom was not the doting, concerned parent I'd given the benefit of the doubt to. So I helped him off the bus and walked up to the door. The mom saw the look on my face and said, You shouldn't be here. I need to see Jack's room. He took something from me and I want it back. This was a lie that I prepared by slipping my Rolex into his pack from the previous day. The mom hesitated at first then looked down at her son, as though checking with him that it was all right. Jack gave a slight nod and led me inside. The smell of death was even stronger here. I swear I saw a dead cat in the corner of the room, and it seemed like feces covered the floor. Jack guided me by the hand to a set of stairs that led to the basement. What's down here? I whispered. My blood was boiling. I was so angry with the mom for letting them live this way. But Jack didn't seem bothered. He 
just tugged my hand and encouraged me to come down with him and said, My room. The basement was damp and moldy, a single dim bulb burning and hanging from a clothes string. As we got to the bottom of the stairs, I saw something on the floor that looked like it was made of wood and had a cover on top of it. Getting closer, I realized it was a tiny coffin, just large enough for Jack. Is there where you sleep? I asked. He nodded, and I heard a muffled scream. There against the wall was a man about half my age, probably old enough to be Jack's father. He was chained up and had half of his stomach pulled out, blood dripping on the concrete floor. His noises distracted Jack, and he went over to his father, and I watched in shock as he began to feed on the mangled organs dangling from his side. I stumbled back toward the steps, my eyes not daring to look away, as Jack kept eating and snarling. This was no way for a child to live. But then, the glint in his eyes and the way his teeth gnashed against his dad's flesh told me the truth. This was not a child at all. It was a ghoul. I ran up the stairs. The mother was there, trembling and crying as she watched helplessly. Why didn't you tell the police? I asked frantically. She covered her mouth as she watched her son keep feeding. Have you ever had children, Mr. Charles? I ran from the house and toward the bus. I got back to work as quickly as possible, and when I shut the bus down, I held my breath for a few moments and counted to ten. Then I realized I'd left Jack's backpack on the bus again. The stench of death was still coming from it. I dared to unzip it and look down to see decaying flesh stuffed in his pack like lunch meat. I pushed it away and gagged. I needed to tell someone... As I got off the bus, I found myself staring at Jack. Somehow he had followed me from his house a few blocks away. You can't tell anyone, he warned. Then he gestured toward the pack and encouraged me to unzip it again. I looked in the goop of blood and bones and saw something shiny in there. I reached in and pulled it out. It was the badge of one of the CPS employees. I looked up at Jack and he smiled and walked away. Ever since that day, I've had Jack sit in the front row of the bus and given him the best treatment. I've recommended his teachers do the same. I hope you enjoyed There's a Boy on My Bus That Smells of Death by author Kyle Harrison. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all our other episodes featuring Twice the Tear, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes, 
for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.